0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and Commodity Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: Good tidings, everyone, and welcome once again to the State of Distress Debt edition of the FIC Focus podcast series. Whereas ever, we focus on the happenings in the U.S. stressed and distressed and bankruptcy markets. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me today, today is June 7th, our Bloomberg Intelligence Distress Credit Analyst, Phil Brindell, and we'd like to also welcome back uh, Litigation Analyst, Nagisa Baluku, and, of course, Eliza Ronald-Hannon of Bloomberg News joins us as well. So, uh you know listen uh phil let's bring you right in straight away because you know may was a pretty interesting month sort of a tale of two cities where you know the beginning part of may was sort of much more of the same in terms of uh, a little bit more of a puke out and sort of, certainly in terms of the high yield market second half of the month we got a really big rebound uh what happened in the landscape of distress it same phenomena or, or a little bit different there
0: well, no, I'm I'm actually getting pretty excited because things are starting to fall into place from a technical perspective. So, if you didn't read me as negative at the end of April, um, this month I hope you really uh, hear me. I, I am bearish. Uh, I'm of the view that we are in for a real credit market dislocation. Uh, the technicals are lining up. Um, you know, I've I have. Uh, these technical signals that are all just pattern based um, over the course of like the 25 years that I've been looking at this distressed, the ICE high yield, uh, well, ICE US distressed index. It's got a 25, 26 year history. And, um, you know, what I look for is a two month surge in distress supply that's greater than 25% and 20 billion in nominal amount. And when this happens off of a Um, very low level of distress supply, specifically like bottom sixth over the past three years. Um, We've seen that only four times previously. And each time it's really kind of led to, you know, this strong start goes into a complete surge. And, you know, just the credit cycle in general for distressed and high yield is basically one of calm and then panic. And, I feel that we are sort of getting lined up for uh, a real distress surge. Um, you know, the, the dates that I look so, back. So,
1: go ahead. so I'm aware. So like, have you reached out to Ed Altman to see if he's cracked open his bottle <laughs> of wine? Because I know that's sort of like, a. I, I think he's been telling the same story for every time I've seen him present over the last 20 years is, you know, he always said it when distress. And he's always got a good bottle of wine that's waiting to be opened. So do you have something similar on your side?
0: No, I don't. I wish that sounds like a good idea, especially if it came true. But, you know, one of one of the things is like my underpinnings, like how I analyze credits is very fundamentally oriented. And a lot of times I'll 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 give my fundamental opinion and that tends to be wrong a lot. However, when I when when I look at when I look at the technicals for the market in general, um, you know the technicals really seem to work well in high yield and credit. Um, you know, when we we had a technical signal that told us to get long high yield June of two thousand twenty, just three months after you know the worst month on record, and sure enough, that was a winner. And so, when the technicals are telling me this time, it's time to get out. Uh, I have more confidence in that than my own fundamental view to some extent, which is a little scary. And, you know, it just, look, I've been doing distress for a long time. And the one thing I know is that, uh, anything's possible. We're definitely looking at everything in a probabilistic sort of way. Um, it looks likely to me that we're, we're in the beginning stages of a big distress debt surge.
1: Well, I mean, certainly it would be welcome to the folks in the marketplace there and and some of the folks that have been raising capital, as we talked about on the, uh, the last podcast. I mean, it's interesting because even when you start to break down, I mean, are there areas that sort of stand out? I know a lot of the names that have been in the headlines like the Bausch Health and maybe Endo, which could be heading towards something, whether it's a distressed exchange or something like that. Um, are you seeing any sort of thematics? Because one thing that certainly doesn't seem to be part of it this time around, which is really highlighted, you know, whether it was 2018 or 2015, you know, energy is not a part of it. So it's really interesting to me that, you know, we're doing this with, you know, with oil prices at wherever they are, $115 a barrel or something like that, um, it seems, you know, sort of out of place.
0: Right. Well, health, healthcare, in fact, is actually one of the higher ones on my screen. It's a, it's a 17% or actually closer to 18% distressed ratio. Um, and then, you know, communications about 6%. Uh, they're still all relatively low levels. I mean, we're at 5.2% distressed, which is, you know, up, I think last month we were at 2.7%. Uh, so w- we're definitely early, um, you know, a- a- as far as technicals go, but, you know, so, so I-, I told you how my technical signals kind of triggering, um, th- the, other thing that struck me as really sort of bearish is that we've had the first five months of the year are supposed to be the strongest months of the year for credit. And they've been the weakest for at least distressed debt. We we've turned in negative performances each month. Um, You know, there's never even been a year in the 26 years prior that we've had four of the first five months be negative before. So that's that's a really bad sign. The worst of the months was May, eight and a half percent down. And then (laughs) we're heading into the worst part of the calendar. June through November is, you know, generally uh, I think it's six of the worst seven months uh, in terms of average return. So you know, and then you look at the fundamentals. You've got rising rates. That's gonna that's gonna crush. uh, um, You know, like everyone who's got floating rate, their their LIBOR costs are gonna go up. Uh, And you've got the inflationary pressure, um, and and so that's gonna squeeze margins. Uh, And then you've got you know people are talking about a hard landing and breaks breaks being applied to the consumer, and you know the Fed not necessarily. Feeling bad about letting the uh, unemployment rate go higher, so all of these things just sort of say, hmm, maybe, maybe we will see credit, and then and then there's the technical aspect that the market tends, at least in credit, it very much tends to be a risk on, risk off sort of mindset, and so uh, all yeah, right of these-
1: now it feels like we're churning a little bit in that, but I I'd want to bring in Eliza here too, right? Because Eliza, you're you're spending a lot of time sort of talking to people that are in this space and you know, are you hearing similar things? Is there sort of like a a little bit of a a flitter of of excitement building out there that maybe there's going to be finally something to do uh, in the marketplace?
2: Yes, there is. People are cautiously optimistic, of course, not wanting to really admit that that's, uh, you know, we are those people who actually want things to go wrong. But I'm also hearing a lot of um, you know, specifically from restructuring people, they're saying we're not quite there yet, just because there's been so much liquidity in the market. Even this downturn doesn't squeeze all that many companies, at least not yet. But because those companies are so leveraged, when it does squeeze them, it's going to squeeze them hard and badly. So um, people are trying to break out their own wine bottles for that purpose, but not quite yet.
1: Interesting. So, so maybe uh, now's a good time to maybe pivot into sort of specific names. And I think one that's certainly been, uh, you know, in the news once again, or I guess maybe persistently. Uh, Nagisa, let's bring you back or bring you into the fold here. J&J, you know, the subsidiary bankruptcy there. Like what's, what's our latest on?
3: Uh, So, yeah, thanks, Noel. So going back to almost eight months ago uh, when J&J put its new subsidiary bankruptcy, subsidiary uh, then and now holds basically all of the talk liabilities pursuant to uh, a Texas divisional merger statute under the Texas uh, Business Reorganization Code. Um, it separates the assets from liabilities and the statute basically maintains that the, that the separation doesn't constitute a transfer. And uh, if there's no transfer, there's no fraudulent transfer. So that enabled the company to conduct the super swift process of, uh, of uh, putting the sub, holding all the talc liabilities, incorporating it in Texas, and basically later that day, switching it to a North Carolina company for purposes of filing in North Carolina. Uh, last year, actually, among the many challenges uh, Natal claimants managed to uh, take the company, uh, convince the North Carolina judge to uh, push the company to a New Jersey court as the more appropriate court. Um, and uh, the uh, initial challenge to the filing was um, that uh, the filing itself constituted a bad faith filing under uh, the bankruptcy code. Um, it was an expected challenge because that happened before the North Carolina courts. Though it was uh, more, uh, it, it was there was a question as to how the New Jersey judge would rule because uh, no court other than North Carolina had decided it before. Um, and uh, in February, the New Jersey, uh, the New Jersey Bankruptcy Code came out with a pretty strong ruling, basically uh, maintaining. Not only that um, there was no bad faith in the filing, but actually sort of taking uh, a broad take in support of uh, things like the Texas divisional merger that would, would call the Texas two-step in saying that this actually provides maybe the better option for companies facing mass tort litigation and a uh, better option in, in resolving such litigation. Um it was a very strongly worded opinion that uh, may have come as a surprise. Uh, certainly, the uh, j j itself did not uh, uh, did not want the case to move to New Jersey. It turned out to be uh, the best bank for it, at least uh, at least till now. Um, and. Uh, from then on, the case is on an expedited appeal route. It was certified for appeal to the Third Circuit, so it skipped the district court where it would normally go uh, after the bankruptcy court and uh, is, there, is there now. Um, and uh, the opinion was sort of interested in, in, in several fronts. Uh, the court basically um, answered the question as to whether the petition itself served this valid bankruptcy purpose. Uh, and whether the debtor uh, filed merely to obtain a tactical advantage. Uh, getting rid of a bankruptcy case as a bad faith filing is not common. It's not a common challenge. And the standard is um, it's, it's not that clearly, it's certainly not clearly stated in the bank, uh, under the bankruptcy code. So uh, courts are not always consistent in how they apply it. Um, actually, one of the reasons why the company filed, uh, J&J filed the sub bankruptcy in North Carolina first, was that the Fourth Circuit was generally known to have um, a much more uh, stringent standard for uh, dismissing a case. And uh, it could it potentially have been easier to dismiss the case in New Jersey. That clearly didn't happen. Um, so... Uh, in In refusing to dismiss the case, uh, the court also noted that the filing would for sure satisfy the standard uh, for good faith in in the Fourth Circuit where North Carolina court stood. And uh, it sort of went on to describe what J&J was doing, uh, ultimately finding that just merely seeking to limit liabilities like J&J is doing in this case. Does not demonstrate bad faith, and uh, basically, and it touched upon a lot of aspects of the case, including uh, a lot of talk that has been around J and J's market cap, its credit rating, and ultimately finding that they just don't matter. That the company itself, J and J itself, has not really doesn't have an obligation to satisfy the tal claims against the sub, and um, and also going into great detail into uh, just the alleged horrible impact that the bankruptcy filing could have uh, on Johnson & Johnson.
1: Yeah. So, so so, what's our state of play here? I mean, so, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, obviously it's been a journey, right? Uh, you know, where do we go from here? Like, what's, what's the next step? Like, uh, are we looking for, you know, what's the resolution timeline? Is there one, or is it still sort of, uh, you know, a lot of unknowns out there.
3: So there are a lot of unknowns that, which could lead itself to a pretty lengthy resolution timeline, which could be a good thing. Without, without them, it would be a very good thing for J&J because through the aid settlement. Um, the next step is to have the Third Circuit hear the uh, good faith challenge uh, for the filing of the case. And uh, they very well may reverse the bankruptcy court decision. Uh, the Third Circuit does have has it, it, it's less strict than the Fourth Circuit, for example, in terms of dismissing a case, which was one of the reasons why j didn't want the case in New Jersey to begin with. Um, and then following that, uh, we have examples of what's happening in North Carolina now with the two cases that are there uh, that uh, filed pursuant to the Texas Two-Step, where you could uh, challenge the case from a subs- from a substantive consolidation standpoint and seek to join the assets of the parent with those of the sub, effectively just negating all the benefits of filing under the Texas two-step. That obviously will take a while for that to read to, to, for for that question to come up in J&J, but it is happening in North Carolina right now and the court has allowed a challenge. Outside of that, there are challenges to the funding agreement. The funding agreement is the main asset of the sub, which is an agreement funded uh, by J It started with two billion dollars, expected to go up through negotiations, where J and J is um, promising to cover this health liabilities. They so could challenge that, but more broadly, if the case stays in bankruptcy court, uh, then you the parties will be subject to what's what would call this estimation proceeding, which again, is not very well defined It's sort of a quasi trial, not really a trial. There's no jury Um, (laughs) that the bankruptcy judge decides sort of what, uh, what the overall liabilities will be. And by overall, I mean, both present and future. So both uh, current victims and victims that don't know that are victims right now. So, and that's what makes sort of the bankruptcy court solution to this, uh to these types of claims so unique because it it would resolve those those questions as well.
2: Nagisa, just zooming out, um, you know, it seems like there's been decisions on column A and column B in terms of just how much of a green light the courts overall are giving to the Texas two step strategy. Um but as far as, you know, if you're gonna put yourself in the position of other companies, you know, potential future two step takers um do you think that the net result recently has been a green light to you know the validity of or at least the feasibility of this strategy or is have any of these decisions um had a bit of a chilling impact perhaps on companies assumptions that this is an option for them
3: so i think it would the sort of say what, uh mass store defendants can do right now and the reason why there's such an interest in the Texas system, I think, is because the other options just aren't that great. We know, for example, that we can't use class actions to resolve it cases. The Supreme Court in the 90s did away with class actions and prohibiting them uh, to resolve mass tort litigation. So with that aside, all we're really left is with uh, the multi-district litigation, which the New Jersey called, the court called it sort of a slow pace. Um uh, uneven race to the courthouse uh, with sort of the bellwether trials which have been all over the place uh, that they, they've uh, they haven't really managed to give a clear view as to where um, the tal claims and the, the ovarian cancer cases will go. some have been settled ahead of time. Uh, so companies facing such cases it's um, it is it is certainly tempting to go the bankruptcy route. Uh, We do not have an answer at all as to where The bankruptcy courts will go with it. We have this initial good faith, bad faith filing, both in Jersey and North Carolina courts. Uh, Both courts, the bankruptcy courts, have so far deemed these cases to be filed in good faith and allow them to proceed. Uh, And by doing that, have opened the door to at least settlement discussions through mediations or otherwise. Uh, But we do have the North Carolina courts going Further and also allowing challenges, as I mentioned before, in terms of substantive consolidation in having victims trying to consolidate the parent with the subs uh, that right now mainly hold only the liabilities. Uh, we don't have a results on those. Uh, but, um, but as I said, no matter what, just the fact that this case is are still in course, and the remainder is almost been eight months for J&J mm-hmm. to begin with—is right, right. positive for the debtors. Um, and also, if you get into the to details of J&J itself, the court is very much pro-mediation, and the medi- even the mediation order has some what I consider sort of kind of atypical components to it that are meant to urge the parties to um,
2: make as much progress in mediation as possible. And you also still have companies who have a likely bankruptcy and and probably in this formula in their near future, again, just likely, um, like Endo. And can you help explain what the, uh, you know, you see these ones, as you have seen Endo do, making regular uh, settlements, you know, smaller settlements along the way, despite the fact that they might soon be in court and have arguably an easier time consolidating the liability and offloading it arguably so what is the incentive for them to for something like endo to try to stay out of court settle some stuff itself and possibly avoid bankruptcy altogether
3: so those are a few things i of would group this kind of companies in two major like sort of groups right one is the companies like endo um uh, mm-hmm. that uh it's not like they've never contemplated bankruptcy, most likely, right? And then you have companies like J&J who probably never would file. And we know that it won't wouldn't file because the cost involved, the litigation, the, the bankruptcy costs, the, the kind of court oversight that the bankruptcy would provide uh, is just not, uh, that just doesn't make sense for them. Um, but then uh, the idea of sort of settling uh, opioid cases. On the side, prior to bankruptcy is not unheard of. Melloncrod did it. Actually, Melloncrod, before it filed as a whole company, uh, tried to file for bankruptcy only uh, specific, uh, the specific. Division of the generic brand that actually produced the opioids, so didn't wasn't able to automatically do that, but it's certainly something that it tried to do. And their opioid settlement happened all out of court, and it wasn't something that um, caused a lot of delay in terms of in court. So these, so just the ability to shorten bankruptcy process would be a huge benefit to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but what the Texas two-step does is that even sort of aside from endo, it gives the option to companies like J&J, who, who probably would never consider bankruptcy, for whom it doesn't make sense to have that court oversight of non-ordinary course business transactions, for example, to consider it and, and, uh, and become successful at it, if only for being able to remain in it for long enough to achieve some sort of settlement.
1: I think we all have to invest in cowboy boots after all that talk of <laughs> the Texas it's
3: two two enough, <laughs> It's not the only, uh, it's not the only state with, with such a, with such a law. There's the, there's a, the Delaware has something similar though. It's, it's different enough to not make it as uh, useful and feasible, but it's not, it's not the only state.
1: <laughs> all right. So maybe we pivot now and, and let's uh You know, another name that uh, we spoke a little bit about uh, on the last podcast, but uh, still in the news, maybe with some
2: refinancing
1: activity, Revlon. Revlon, Liza?
2: I would love to ask Bill a little bit about Revlon. Um, You know, the company is looking at refinancing some loans, which that alone isn't so interesting or new or unusual. But these have got to be some of the (laughs) most complicated loans uh from the start that anyone could possibly have to look at restructuring based on their history um bill i mean how how do you how do you refinance loans that uh have been through so much uh drama already that no one necessarily knows where they even sit or who owns them
0: yeah no we it, it it's it's going to be really interesting for revlon and you know one of the thing that's particularly interesting is just the reporting on this because apparently the Wall Street Journal came out with an initial article where they discussed, you know, that they they pointed to the loan that was in, you know, subject to the Citibank payment and that they paid it down and said that those were the lenders that were negotiating. And that would make sense because that in in sort of temporal order, that that that's coming due in September of 2023. But it turns out they're actually talking to their most senior lenders, uh, the uh, the Branco uh, lenders, who did the transaction in May 2020. Now this is a great piece of paper if you're a, you know an investor in the credit markets. Um, Noel, told me the last time you saw the, a first lien uh, loan with the highest coupon in the in the stack? At, at, it's 12% cash pay. Plus another two percent pick, so, <laughs> so it, it's an extremely attractive paper. In fact, the pick just turns out to be a little bit more than what it's actually getting amortized at. So it's a it, it's a great piece of paper. It's first lien. They moved the assets like Elizabeth Arden and some other assets. In fact, actually, all they really left was the old Revlon in the other uh, in, in, in the other loan uh, as collateral. And so this Branco loan has all of these other assets segregated, where they just have a first lien on it, and then they also share the first lien on the Revlon assets as well. And apparently, it's those lenders that they're talking to. Um, let's just going back in time um, when they handed out the allocations; those allocations turned up on a website that, because they were in the midst of trying to negotiate with bondholders. And at the time, uh, the the big five—Angelo Gordon, Aries, Oak Hill, King Street, and Glendon—they own. They they were allocated 1.56 billion of the 1.8 billion of uh, term loans here. So that's the first lien plus the second lien. So they really are. That's a great thing for negotiation when you can actually get five people in a room and you're not talking to, you know, call it, uh, you know, you you're trying to you know, get the cats and dogs of, you know, maybe holding ones and twos. I mean, they can cut a deal here that's, you know, uh, you know, significant. Um, however, you've also got to make it worth their while. So, um, and that's a lot of money, although it's at that level, the first lien, um, you know, that loan's probably trading well over par. Um, I think it was at I think I have it at one six, you know, it's trading well over par. Um, and so, you know, do, do get people to help refinance some of that. Now, the first lien's trading well over par, but the second lien is not. So as things turn, maybe maybe they're looking at doing a, a, a bigger restructuring and maybe they're threatening to refinance those first lien lenders and second lien lenders. Um because the company is actually doing really well. It's, it's posted its highest trailing 12-month EBITDA in the past uh, five years. Um, but anyway, I, 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 I really went off on a tangent. <laughs> you, you asked the question um, yeah. about the ownership of the 2016 non-extended term loan that matures next September. And the truth of the matter is we don't even really know who's the owner of that loan. Um,
2: because of the dramatic Citigroup error last year, right? That's uh, right. That's the right. Loan was partially repaid, but it's up for debate who actually paid it. Yeah, and so, who was so paid.
0: let's let, let, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so that was about nine hundred million dollars. About five hundred million um, was held by uh, you know, they paid the Citibank paid. All of that $900 million, um, only certain lenders returned that money. And so about $500 million uh, of those lenders, uh, which included Brigade, they took their money and got sued by Citigroup, uh, and Citigroup still pursuing an appeal. Um, but in the initial district court, uh, they, the Brigade and all of the lenders who kept their money Actually, one. And so now Citigroup is appealing that. But during all this litigation, how do you do a restructuring when, Mm -hmm. you know, if the appeal is successful, Brigade owns that loan. Mm -hmm. If the appeal is not successful, (laughs) then... Citigroup owns that or, and it's not or, even clear that Citigroup right. even owns that loan. Although right. I, 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 I am a strong proponent that I think it's a strong case that Citigroup would just step into the shoes of uh, the lender there through the doctrine of sub- subrogation. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that the lien would be set up. Uh, Revlon does note in their 10 K um, that they're not taking a position But uh, Citigroup did, you know, has alleged that, you know, it it would, you know, through the doctrine of subrogation, that it would it would continue to own that loan if it were to lose, you know, all of its, uh, um, you know, litigation uh, appeals. Um,
1: So so I'll summarize that as (laughs) looking for is for the real Slim Shady to please stand.
2: (laughs) up. Something like that.
1: All right. So maybe we pivot to um, something new and exciting that isn't like, uh, you know, a European random airline charter company. We've got some real bankruptcy. Yeah. Do we not? We really do. Yeah. Are you picking on Nordic
0: Aviation Capital there, Noel? (laughs) No. Yeah, That's just Yeah, for, for
1: like six months, that was the most exciting thing we had to talk yeah, about it, in the land it's, of it's bankruptcy. it's been pretty quiet so, in
0: the in, in the chapter eleven. So now we've got
1: first we get Talon, then we got TPC. Like, what is going on?
0: Well, I can again, yeah, I I can discuss Talon a little bit. I um, what's interesting there is you have a lot of debt; it's over five billion, and uh, the unsecured note holders who are at the tail end of that capital structure. Are backing a 1.3 billion dollar rights offering, uh, where they're, you know, they're they're putting up money to take out the secured creditors in full. However, it's they're looking at like a 12 to 18 month bankruptcy, and the secured creditors are supposed to be taken out at full. But the, right off the bat, the revolver lenders have agreed that the adequate protection that they'll take is just. Um, replacement liens, and uh, they don't need to be paid current interest. So all of the secured lenders there are not getting paid current interest as adequate protection, which is, you know, to the extent you're saying on one hand, oh, we're going to take you out in full, and then on the other, oh, by the way, you're not getting paid currently. Um, The secured creditors are a little bit perturbed by that. They've noted that in the first days, and you know I expect that um, this is going to be a little bit tricky because also when they counted the dollars, it doesn't seem like it, there's enough money there to take out the secured creditors in full. So there's more more to come there. Uh, the unsecured, by the way, are are led by, um, and I you know forgive me, I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge on these firms, but uh, the, the 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 funds are Rubric Capital, Castle Knight, and well Nuveen is, is more familiar. I'm more familiar for their municipal. Bond uh, platform than uh, necessarily the, the the credit and distressed uh, shop, but anyway, those those three are the largest holders in the unsecured note holder group that's uh, doing the backstopping this rights offering.
1: Interesting, and then you know, and Eliza, you, you had a little on uh, TPC, or do we know anything about that situation in terms of? I mean, it's relatively recent, right? So,
2: yes, it is, but it's already gotten dramatic. There was a big first day hearing battle. Um, everyone wants to kind of fight each other for the right to lend the dip. But what really stuck out to me was that the dip that was sort of the default proposal that uh, the company rolled into bankruptcy with um, involved lending only at most $85 million of new capital um, and rolling up, I think, almost 250. So that seems very bold to me on the scale of creditors trying to roll up a lot of their previous debt in and into the dip to make it have the highest priority it sort of is echoing the priming battles we're seeing elsewhere but certainly started everyone off with their claws drawn um and now after a bit of a fight i think that they've settled on um moving forward with that original dip but everyone has preserved their right to challenge it um is that right phil
0: Yeah. So yeah, I I think they got interim approval. I think people got comfortable with the uh, dip because it was one of the things that they preserved was uh, people's ability to challenge the, uh, the, specifically the the, the ranking of um, the 10 and 7 eighths notes, which were priming Mm -hmm. senior notes that were put in in 2021. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's what's, Theoretically being rolled, but that's pending a final approval. So that's going to be fought as well. But uh, I think the final hearing, the final approval hearing is June 29th there. And in the meantime, I think we're going to hear uh, summary judgment arguments on uh, one of the things that they did in 2021 was they changed the intercreditor agreement such that uh, the 10.5 notes. There's 930 million of those. They had a first lien on the PP&A and, uh, everything but the, what the uh, receivables and inventory uh, collateral was. And so, so what they did in that uh, inter-creditor agreement amendment in 2021 was allow these notes to go ahead of it. And so now there's two, over $200 million of notes uh, that are in front or at least that's the way the company views it and one of the things that the and the two firms are bayside and cerberus they're arguing they're the non-consenting note holders one of the what they are effectively arguing is that that in creditor agreement change uh is requires every holder so mm-hmm. the 90 million dollars of notes that they hold wouldn't be subject to uh you you needed to get their consent uh, specifically from them uh, that they agreed to be primed and they never agreed to that. So that is very much uh, up for a legal argument. And I think that's what they're going to tackle or try and tackle ahead of June 29th. Although that schedule is, I think, being negotiated actively as we speak.
1: All right, so interesting times here, but uh finally I guess maybe a little bit of something to do and uh, as we get into the uh, July podcast.
0: I no hey, no. Oh, I, yeah. I, I you were asking about themes. This is I I think between talent and TPC we see one theme that is consistent and that is that the high cost of energy, inventory and, you know, keeping on hedges or Picking up inventory is leading to real liquidity problems at both of these companies. Both of these companies, really, it was a liquidity issue due to high energy prices. Yeah,
1: so, well, I mean, talk about flipping the script of uh, <laughs> the last couple of waves of uh, distress that we've gotten. So, yeah, certainly something to keep an eye on. And to your earlier point uh, to start the call, right, I think one of the big things that's going to be uh, worth watching as we move through the second half of the year is going to be all that margin pressure. Uh, that's certainly going to move through a lot of the P and L's in the space. Uh, so that will definitely be interesting. But uh, let me uh, go ahead and uh, see if anybody has some last words. Let's start with you, Nagis. Any uh, last thoughts before we uh, leave our fine listeners for the month?
3: Oh, I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to look into the new cases, and uh, J&J will probably continue to be excited for uh, quite a
2: while.
1: Yeah, it sounds like years. Sounds like Aaron Brockovich action going on there. (laughs) Uh, Eliza, how about you? What's on the plate for the month ahead?
2: Just following a lot of these um, increasingly dramatic battles. um, Certainly, been hearing that more creditor on creditor violence is to come. (laughs) So, those deals, whether they are. I don't know why
1: I always think West Side Story every time you say that. That's that's exactly uh, what you
2: think. And so that's the biggest theme that uh, you know continues to
0: dominate.
1: Excellent, last, excellent last word to Phil. What do you got?
0: Oh no, nothing. I, I or you, I, already, I, gave I, yeah, you already, I already gave it to gave me. already gave it to
1: me with to your you. big themes. All right. Yeah. So with that, uh, we'd like to thank everybody for uh, dialing in once again. And as always, we look forward to uh, circling back up with everyone in July. Take care.